the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Blackquote.com slash commercial. The following program is sponsored Know the Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy explains how grace enables us to give. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, grace is not something we believe in. It is something we experience and live out. One of the effects of the gospel is that it pries open our hands and hearts to give to others to gospel endeavor. Some of us are adverse to discussions about finances and giving. These are the touchy subjects that hit right where it hurts, in our wallets, in our bank accounts. But today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourcy introduces us to the grace of God that produces generosity. As we study 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, we're learning to be cheerful givers as we glorify God and build up His church. Today's message is titled, Happy to Give. So let's join Philip DeCourcy as he opens today's program with a story. I was just in Texas last week in the Big D, and so I want to bring in the biography of Sam Houston, who has been described as the father of Texas. He led the Texans in the fight against General Santa Ana and the Mexican army at the Battle of San Jacinto. And the defeat of Santa Ana led to the establishment of the state of Texas. And like all frontiersmen, Sam Houston was a man's man. In fact, he was fierce, he was a fighter. He was Scots-Irish by ethnicity. He was a hard worker. He had political ambition. And like many of those frontiersmen, he liked the bottle a little bit too much. In fact, he was called the big drunk. His second wife was a believer, Margaret. She was a Baptist by conviction, and she was working on her husband. It took a while, but in November 19, 1854, Sam Houston makes a public confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of 63. And if you read about his baptism, it's quite interesting. He's baptized in the chilly waters of the little rocky creek. He was baptized by Pastor Rufus Burlinson, who was the pastor of Independence Baptist Church and the president of Baylor University. And when he was going down into the water, Pastor Burlinson noticed that he still had his wallet in his pocket, and so he'd suggested that he might hand his wallet over to someone who was witnessing the baptism. But Sam Houston famously replied, it needs baptizing too. (laughs) And so historians tell us, quote, one of the greatest religious leaders of early Texas baptized the greatest political leader of Texas, wallet and all. Now, I love that image, the image of a baptized billfold. You see, in surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
That will always involve the act of consciously putting your pocketbook at his disposal. Because in belonging to Jesus Christ, I don't think I need to tell you this. We know this in theory, but we don't often practice it. In belonging to Jesus Christ, everything that belongs to us automatically belongs to him as Lord and as master of our lives. And that's just true in general anyway. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What have you received that you were not given? Job 41 verse 11 tells us all that is under heaven belongs to him. Proverbs 3 verses 9 and 10 tells us that we need to honor the Lord with our possessions. What we do with our money is a reflection of our devotion and dedication to Jesus Christ. Now, if what we have is His, that would remind us that every one of us is God's money managers. I don't know if you've got a money manager. You say, I don't need one because I don't have enough money to manage. Okay, I get it. But some of you might have a money manager, but do you realize you're a money manager? Whether that's 50000 a year or 500000 a year, that's God's money, and you manage it while you're here for His glory. You're what's called the steward of your time, your treasure, and your talents. And you and I need to grasp that afresh, myself included. The money that we save, the money that we spend, the money that we share is His money. Now, if I've convinced you of that, Here's something to think about. This is going to be the pivot point in the sermon. What we have is His. Everybody agreed? What do you have that you haven't received? What we have is His, because what we have He gave. Follow me so far? Watch where it goes. What we have is His, because what we have He gave. So what we have, we must give as He directs us, since it's His. Now, that's true, and it is true. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Let's think about this idea of the baptized billfold. Let's think of this idea of stewarding our money, managing our money for God's glory. And I'm going to suggest to you 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is extended teaching on the act and art of grace giving. It's probably the most clear and compelling and comprehensive passage anywhere in the New Testament, and I would even suggest the Old Testament for that matter, with regards to the grace of giving. Now, let me put the text in its context. Let's think about the history behind it. The history behind these two chapters is the fact that Paul, during his missionary journeys, was collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem. Because the church in Jerusalem was poor. If you go to Acts eleven twenty-seven to 30, you'll realize at one point there was a famine in Judea. And it was hitting the saints hard in Judea and Jerusalem. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4, Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, he talks about the collection for the saints. And when you tie that to Romans 15, 25 to 27 and Galatians 2, it's a collection for the Jewish saints in Jerusalem. And Paul's going to Gentile churches in Macedonia and in Corinth and other cities and saying, guys, would you give to the saints in Jerusalem? Now, Paul's got a bit of an idea behind this. 
He's thinking this is a great bridge-building project because you read the book of Acts. The Jewish believers were struggling with where the Gentiles fit in. That's what the Council of Jerusalem is all about. And you know what Paul's saying as he does in Galatians 3? There's neither Jew nor Gentile in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if the Gentile believers bailed out the Jewish believers and we build a bridge here and we show that we're one in Christ? That's kind of the history behind this. Paul is gathering a collection And it's not only practical in its purpose to relieve them in famine, it's theological in its purpose, and it will promote unity. Now, it's interesting. Look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8. He'll say this, And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began, which would take us back to his first letter, this collection, so they'd already contributed or they were beginning to get together this collection and promise to help. So he admits that. He says, you know what? You're doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. So what's the background to chapter 8 and 9? It's a collection for the saints. It will relieve their famine and their need. It will promote unity. And you know what? They started to get involved a year ago, and Paul's reminding them, hey, this needs to come full circle. Do what you said you were going to do. Get that collection. Let's send it to the saints in Jerusalem. That's the history behind it. But there's a theology behind it as we look at this text in its context. What is the theology? It's the self-giving of God through Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's what's prompting Paul's call to give. Behind their giving to the saints in Jerusalem stands God's giving of Jesus Christ. Can I show you this? Scroll down to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And he's talking about the poor saints in Jerusalem who need to be enriched. Why should they do it? The gospel. Hasn't God enriched you? Hasn't God given you His grace in the poverty that was your life before Jesus Christ. Grace and the doctrine of grace prompts and is the driving force in Paul's appeal. Let me just show you it again. Look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God. Look at verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Look at verse 7. But as you abound in everything, in faith and in speech and in knowledge and in all diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace. What grace? The grace of giving that was displayed generously by the Macedonians. He'll go on to talk about the grace of God in Jesus Christ in verse 9. And if you scroll to the end of chapter 9 and verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So the history is a collection for the poor saints, the unifying of the church, and the fact that the Corinthians need to finish what they started. But the theology that's driving it is, hey guys, why should you be generous? Why should you heed my appeal to help the brothers and sisters in Israel? Here's why. Because God has been so gracious to you. Now that ties into our study, right? Total grace. We've looked at saving grace, serving grace, singing grace, sharing grace, strengthening grace, suffering grace. Here's sacrificing grace, where we sacrifice to relieve God's people locally and globally. 
where we finance global missions, where we support God's servants, and we do it because grace prompts us to do it. One of the effects of the gospel is that it pries open our hands and hearts to give to others. Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. See, grace is not something we believe in. It is something we experience and live out. And one of the ways the grace of God will display itself in our life is in generous giving. So let's look at this passage. There's two chapters. We'll kind of hop, skip, and jump across them. My initial outline is the motives of grace giving, the manner of grace giving, the multiplication of grace giving, the message of grace giving. What about the motives of grace giving? So we're going to answer the question, why? Why should you give to the Lord's work? Why should you be a generous Christian? Why should you be known for your liberality? to people in need, to gospel endeavor. I've got three reasons that jump out in the text. Let's start to work our way through them. Number one, the praise of God. The praise of God. Why should you give? Because God gets glory when you give. God gets glory when you give. And what's true of giving is true of living, is true of forgiving, is true of anything in our life. Whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, remember to reflect God's character. Put His glory on display. You get a similar thought in Colossians 3 verse 17. We're made in the image of a gracious God. We're made in the image of a generous deity. Therefore, let's reflect His glory in our giving. Let's honor the Lord with our possessions. Proverbs 3 verse 9. And you're going to see this in the text. Well, let's look at chapter 8 first of all. Look at verse 19 and the reference to the glory of God. Paul's speaking about the administration of this gift and how it ought to be handled. He wants certain guys to do it so there's integrity in the process of taking this collection to Jerusalem. But I want you to notice in verse 19, he says that they ought to do this to the glory of the Lord himself. Scroll down to verse 23, similar thought with regards to the management of money. It ought to be above board. There ought to be accountability. There ought to be integrity. And Paul says, why? So that as the gift is taken through the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ indeed might take place. Scroll down to verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9. He anticipates the gift going to Jerusalem. And here's the fallout of it. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession of the gospel of Christ. What's the point? When that money gets to Jerusalem, people will be relieved, mothers will be made happy, children will be fed, families will be helped, there'll be a smile on their face, there'll be a sense that they can get through the famine, and they'll start giving thanks to God for the generosity of the Corinthians. God's going to get the glory. So I think you've got my point. You want a motive to give? If you give generously and give well, God gets glory and Jesus gets praise. And I think that's what your life's all about, isn't it? 
Now, we don't have time to take a deep dive into this, but what does it look like in some ways to honor God with your money, honor God with your possessions, bring glory to God with your possessions? I just wrote down a little list. So this is kind of bullet points for you to think about. Number one, make your money honestly. I mean, if you're going to honor God with your possessions, make sure you've worked hard and your money's honest. You haven't stole it. You haven't robbed somebody of what's duly theirs. You know, you're not making your money under the table. No, make your money honestly. Hold it lightly. Make it honestly, hold it lightly. What does that mean? Well, it's not yours for starters. So don't hold on to it too tightly. If God wants to direct you to give it to someone or give it to something, you ought to do it because you're holding it lightly. And you're not trusting in uncertain riches. That's another reason you've got to hold it lightly. Because if you hold it too tightly and money becomes everything to you, it starts becoming your God and you start putting your trust in it, finding your joy there, your security there. That's bad for you spiritually. First Timothy 6 warns you, do not trust uncertain riches. Make it honestly, hold it lightly, budget it appropriately. When your wage comes in, budget it. Jim and I have operated mostly on a budget called the 70-20-10 budget. We've got to pay our mortgage. We've got to pay our bills. We've got to take care of our girls on 70% of our income. Then we've got to save 20% because cars break down. Girls need clothes and clothes and clothes. <laughs> you know, you might want to go on a holiday. You might have a medical bill, all jokes aside. You get it. You'll need 20% money there for some discretionary spending or some savings that start to build up or you build it into your retirement. Money managers will tell you you ought to be saving about 20% of your income for retirement. And then there's 10% that goes to the Lord, and that's just the starting place. We've been able to do more than that at times, but nothing less than that. I like that budget, 70, 20, 10. Helps. But that's a good management of money. If you manage your money, there's always money for the Lord an extra for others. Make it honestly, hold it lightly, budget it appropriately, and give it generously and spend it wisely. Remember what is a necessity and what is a luxury. God has given us all things to enjoy. Luxuries are not evil, but they're not always necessary. And especially if someone is suffering, you could help, or the Lord's work is impoverished while we're all buying ourselves luxuries rather than necessities. You get the point. Praise God with your income. Glorify Him. Baptize your billfold, so to speak. Bring it under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Number two, the poverty of God. Here's another motive. Here's another reason to give generously. Here's another reason, as Paul will tell the Corinthians, to excel in giving. Here's the reason. The impoverishment of Christ through the incarnation and his humiliation on the cross. Look at verse 9. I've quoted it, but it's a wonderful verse. And we often hear it preached by a Billy Graham or a Greg Laurie or an evangelist, and it's a great text. But we've often taken this gospel text out of its context. Paul's preaching the gospel here. Paul's bringing us to the cross. Paul's having us think about the incarnation, the virgin birth, all of that. For what reason? So we'd give more. So we'd kind of loosen our purse strings. What does he say? He's prompting them to give to the church in Jerusalem. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He'll pick that theme up in chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Best gift I was ever given, Jesus Christ. My salvation. So here we have this idea. 
having talked about the glory of God as one motive, Paul, interestingly, gives us another motive when God in Jesus Christ sets aside his glory. How glorious is that? Humbles himself, adds humanity to his deity, comes in the likeness of a man in the form of a servant, becomes obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11, though he was rich, rich in glory, adored by angels, he became poor, born into a poor home, worked in a carpenter's shop alongside Joseph. Throughout his ministry, he had very little in terms of earthly belongings. In fact, the Bible says of our Lord Jesus that the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't have a 401k and he didn't have a house, let alone two houses. In fact, when he died, he died naked on a cross and Roman soldiers gambled for his garments, though he was rich but for our sake he became poor. That we in our poverty, what does that mean? That means spiritual poverty. If we're going to get saved, we have nothing to offer to God. Even our righteousness, our good works, our good deeds, they're filthy rags. They're like a dirty diaper. Literally, that's what that phrase means in the Hebrew. Or a cloth that's been stained by a woman's menstruation. It's literally the idea in Isaiah. That's what your good works look like to God. Like filthy rags, stained cloths. You have nothing to offer God. If you're going to get saved, God's going to have to do it. And you know what? He did it in the coming of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, was made poor, that we in our poverty might be made rich. I'm not talking about the nice car you drove in. That's a blessing. That's cream on the cake. That's a cherry on the ice cream. I'm talking about what you have in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the hope of heaven. And when you understand all of that, what you have, it's a glorious thing. That's why I love Adrian Rogers. He said this, you'll see how rich you are when you add up everything you have that money cannot buy and death cannot steal. I think he said somewhere else that there's some people who are so poor, all they have is money. I like the story that comes out of old England about the tax assessor would go through the villages of England back in the early days and people would get taxed on their property and their silverware and their tableware. And this assessor comes to this old cottage and he asks the man what he's got that could be taxed. The guy said, oh, you want to know my possessions? Number one, I have everlasting life. Number two, I have a mansion in heaven. Number three, I have peace that passes all understanding. Number four, I have joy unspeakable. Number five, I have divine love and it never fails. Number six, I have a faithful wife. Number seven, I have healthy and obedient children. Number eight, I have loyal friends. Number nine, I have a song in the night. And number 10, I have a crown of life waiting for me in heaven. The tax assessor looked at him and said, man, you're rich and the best of it all is it can't be taxed. And so are you, and so am I. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. That's Philip DeCourcy explaining that God's grace sets us free to live generous and rich lives. You're listening to Know the Truth, and today's message is from the current series titled Total Grace. To hear previously aired broadcasts, visit ktt.org. And while you're on our website, take the KTT Listener Survey. Today is the last day to add your comments to the survey online at ktt.org. 
All this month, we've been exploring how grace saves us, grace keeps us, and grace enables us to give to others and make the gospel known. This series is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you, and today we hope you'll respond by making a donation to Know the Truth. When you give $25 or more, we'll show our appreciation by sending you the book we've been telling you about all month. It's a must-read for anyone who wants more hope and optimism in their lives, rooted and grounded in God's grace. The book is called Grace-Focused Optimism by C.L. Chase. And today is the last day to request it. So call us right now at 888-644-8811 or go to ktt.org. You can also request Grace-Focused Optimism when you become a monthly Truth Ambassador. As a regular partner with Know the Truth, you'll receive special monthly devotionals, plus the Accord newsletter that reports on the impact your gifts are making in the lives of listeners all across the country. Sign up today at ktt.org. And if you're new to Know the Truth, today is also the last day to request the free CD message titled, A New Beginning. This is Philip's first message in the Total Grace series, and it's all about saving grace, the grace that begins our new life in Christ. Ask for the CD message when you call 888-644-8811. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Learn more about God's amazing total grace when you join us Friday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Hospitality is a laying down of your life. It's a sacrifice so that the hand of the stranger can be put into the hand of the Savior. It's, it's bridge work. When you invite others into your home, it's not about your gift of hospitality. This is Focus on the Family Minute, and Dr. Rosaria Butterfield offers her perspective. The last thing you want is somebody to ask you for a recipe at the end of the night. You want them to ask you if they could have some follow-up time to pray about something that we, we just talked about. So, so giftedness is a bereft concept. It leads to this false idea that you are going to, through your giftedness, disciple people into the kingdom of God. God forbid. Real converts happen because God steps in and changes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. More about hospitality at familyminute.org. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.